Good evening. Welcome to The Pipeline. I'm Corey Morgan. This is our Western Standards weekly news and issues panel where we'll break things down, discuss them, and uh, sometimes you can solve questions and problems, but not always. I'm joined, it's a little bit of a different shakeup today, by our uh, business and energy writer, Sean Pulser here on the far right. I think it's your hey, first Corey. time on The Pipeline, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And of course, our opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford, uh, stalwart regular on this show. Good to be back. Ah, good. And uh, yes, we've got a lot to come into today. So before we start into the issues, though, we do have to talk about those people who help pay our bills and keep this show on the air. One of which is the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, a fantastic organization. If you are a person who enjoys firearms, whether you're collecting or target shooting, hunting, any of those things, you need to be a member of the CSSA. It's essential. You want to protect your rights to be able to continue to enjoy those and have your kids enjoy those. So check them out. It's at uh, Canadian Shooting Sports Association, CSSA-CILA.org. And as well, just one nagging reminder for you guys, we do not take any government funding, but we do rely on you to subscribe. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go there, westernstandard.news slash uh, slash membership, take out a membership, $9.99 a month or $100 a year, and you'll get full unfettered access to all of our news stories, columns, and all that good stuff. So yes, we will have a few things to chat about today. Uh, where to begin with, though, and that's part of why we've got Sean in here, is we've got some energy issues going on. We've been waiting for a while on this, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll get you to begin with that, Sean. Uh, Bill C-50 finally came out. They've renamed it. Uh, it doesn't seem to quite have the teeth in it necessarily. I thought it might, but I mean, perhaps you could explain a little more what's going on there. I mean, is it a tension point with, with Premier Smith or uh, what's the, how did that bill land with things? Well, it's a little bit like putting lipstick on a pig there, Corey. <laughs> they called it the sustainable jobs bill, but really what it is is the just transition bill. And it was part of a flurry of uh, developments that kind of came fast and quick, almost uh, too much to keep up with. Um, so the bill itself was released a day ahead of a meeting with uh, Daniel Smith and Energy Minister Brian Jean and uh, other representatives of the province that had been promised apparently before the election. Um, hours before the meeting, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson came with uh, Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBanc, and they handed out $325 million to the city of Calgary for electric buses, on top of another $150 million from the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, and then uh, proceeded into the meeting, <clears throat> uh, made lots of comments about uh, having no lines in the sand. <laughs> uh, I think the quote that he made to the Canadian press was, uh, I would never make ex take extremist positions on issues and hardline positions. And then the very next day we get a report from the Canadian energy regulator for the pathways to net zero, which basically calls for 70% elimination of oil and gas, 83% reduction in oil sands, 60% reduction in natural gas, basically all our worst fears that Premier Smith has been saying all this time. Well, that's it. I mean, the, the bill kind of in their talk reiterates what they'd like to do. I mean, what they want to see with this reduction in, in petrochemical production and sales, but they haven't quite gotten into the how, have they? I mean, they, they, 
there's only so many ways they could make this happen, Nigel, but where do you think it's going? Well, you know, it is a um, nominally both parties want the same thing. Premier Smith has outlined her government's support for the overall gas, of, uh, overall goal of eliminating uh, carbon, uh, carbon emissions, bringing it to net zero by 2050. Uh, the federal government wants to do the same thing by 2035. So you'd think there might be room there to come together, but it doesn't seem to work out that way because the feds want to do it their way, which is by capping emissions, whereas our premier wants to do it the Alberta way, which is by producing more efficiently and produce and reducing the emissions that way, and just take, taking a little longer to do it. By the way, not uh, jeopardizing electricity supplies while we're doing it. So I, I, I think it's a sort of a, a, and as a matter of fact, one of our columnists, uh, Ken Green from the Fraser Institute, hell of a good writer, a fellow I've known for years, and I kind of trust his judgment on these things. He too is sort of saying it's a discussion over means rather than ends on the surface. What's really going on? Well, that's where we get into our... Uh, in, 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 into speculating about what's going on in the back of people's minds. And we probably shouldn't do that because we don't know for sure. But I'm wondering if this is actually something that uh, Ottawa really has a position where Alberta could win as well as they do. Well, I don't know if they're even taking Alberta into consideration when they do these things. Oh, this is all aimed at Alberta. Oh, I understand. <laughs> but they're not taking our good, inter or the, yeah. good interest on, on their part. But. So here's one of, the, one of the weird things. Like China, as we know, what was the figure that you trotted out yesterday, uh, Sean, about how, how much uh, CO of the, what's the fraction of the world's CO2 transmissions that China is responsible for? About a third. About a third. I, okay, it's a third. All right. So why, how, why is it so large? They have, they're a large country, but they burn a hell of a lot of coal. All right. Natural gas is cleaner. Doesn't get, if if cleanliness is measured by the amount of carbon dioxide, well, then natural gas is clean fuel. Why don't we sell them natural gas? Federal government doesn't want us to do that. Now, isn't that a funny thing? This is where you start to wonder why people make the decisions they do. You've got two promises side by side. And each has, it thinks, the constitutional jurisdiction over its energy, its environment. And Ottawa comes along and says, no, it's one atmosphere. So we're going to dictate what both provinces do. One atmosphere. Can't have it all to yourself. Then we come to uh, the, the China issue, and the one atmosphere argument falls down dead. Oh, no, we've got to... Canada has to meet its own emissions targets. Doesn't matter about China. We're just doing it here. Well, what about the one atmosphere? No, 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 don't, you know. So there's something really strange about the way Ottawa thinks of these things in relation to the provinces. Well, it's more ideological than pragmatic, really. I mean, they won't accept mitigation. You know, natural gas, certainly it emits, but it's a heck of a lot less than coal. But they won't go for that middle ground. No, they won't. I mean, the Paris Accord, which is what they say they're trying to meet the terms of, actually has a provision, what is it, Article 6, that says if you 
sell natural gas to somebody else, you can count that against your own emissions. Well, if you help other countries reduce their own yeah. emissions, then yes, you uh, can claim those uh, credits as well. And apparently um, there's enough potential in Western Canada anyway, so Alberta and Northeast BC with LNG to basically offset the country's entire emissions profile so by why, exporting natural gas to Asia. So do we know why they don't want to go for that? I'm not exactly sure, and I did put that question to the uh, chief economist of the Canadian energy, energy regulator, and they had not factored that into their calculations. So, and to their credit, basically the only assumption that they made was that Canada reaches net zero. So they worked backwards from there. Normally when you're trying to work out a hypothesis, you try to work through the facts and then you come up to the, you know, the hypothesis at the end. Well, in this case, they started with the hypothesis <laughs> that we're going to reach mm -hmm. net zero by 2050 and then work backwards and said, this is how they're going to do it. But there was uh, no uh, provision for exports or reducing other um, countries' emissions. Mm -hmm. And then also, uh, there was no provision for increases in population. Canada hit 40 million people last week, and we're expected to be pretty close to 50 million by 2050. All of whom, of course, exhaled carbon dioxide and burned it in their cars and heating their homes. Absolutely. Well, then getting back to assumptions, you know, that the whole premise of this, at least when they named it as well, the transition, was that energy jobs are going to disappear. They're not going to be around anymore. Demand apparently is going to disappear for our hydrocarbons, and they're going to have to train these, uh, you know, energy workers into a new career environment or something of the sort. But I mean, for most economists and such, there's no indication that demand, world demand for petrochemical products is going to be dropping anytime soon. So that leaves the fear that that just means that they plan on shutting it in here, despite what world demand might be. Is that sort of my interpreting that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, the U.S. government's Energy Information Agency um, in fact, predicts U.S. oil consumption to rise by 2050, uh, partly due to things like population increases to about 19 million barrels a day from 16. So it was previously at about 20. It's gone down to about 16, and they see it climbing back up to uh, 19 by 2050 and essentially just staying there. Um, had a piece on the weekend about Brazil. Brazil wants to pretty much double their oil production and overtake Canada as the world's fourth largest producer. So uh, governments around the world are still increasing investments in oil and gas. Shell is increasing its oil production 1% to 2-3% a year. It came out of their annual meeting. Exxon Mobil, um, these 2050 net zero targets, they're supposed to disclose them under these new reporting standards, and they basically said that they're not material because it's not going to happen by 2050. And it's going to have like zero financial impact on their business. <laughs> and if Exxon is saying that, you know, I think uh, they probably know a little bit more than the International Energy Agency. Absolutely. I mean, in Norway as well, I think they're increasing and Norway their, as well. uh, North Sea uh, operations and things like that <clears throat> too. It's just, we, we seem to be the only Boy Scouts out there saying we're going to contract. I guess we'll just have to settle for being better people. <laughs> Hungry and cold people. Hungry and cold and not going anywhere, but uh, my word. Well, and the way that they're going to do it is very interesting as well, because they're uh, proposing to essentially more than double the carbon tax to about $380 a ton because uh, the idea here is that if we keep it at 170 to 2050 that inflation erodes the effectiveness of the tax at uh, essentially shutting in oil and gas 
uh, 3% production caps per year. So uh, the aim of these policies is to make oil and gas unprofitable and to force companies to essentially shut it into the ground. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting light on what they expect inflation to be in the years to come. Uh, as you go to the grocery again, keep that in mind. That $7 pound of butter, when did you save? $380 a ton for carbon prices? That's what year? Um, by 2050, that was, uh, I think it was actually after 2040, they, uh, they assumed it coming in because 170 is what, 2030? Well, I guess it'll be your guys' problem then. You never know how long you might make it. <laughs> I mean, part of the challenge, too, though, is these guys keep moving the goalposts. I, I mean, it was only a few years ago the environment minister was saying there's no way we're going to go past 50 uh, per ton. And they've blown that right out of the water. Uh, that's going to cause an investment chill. I mean, why would you want to put money into a country when they, the government just seems to obsessed with, with, with shutting well, down? Well, they wouldn't want that, would they? Imagine the, imagine the government of Canada wanting an investment chill in uh, natural resource extraction in Canada. Yeah. Well, and that was another point that the chief economist made, was that uh, the government might have to use these policy levers to uh, accelerate that transition to zero by 2050 if some of these other measures don't work. So, in other words, uh, moving the goalpost is uh, perfectly within in the rules in, in this scenario as well. Yeah, we can't trust them to stop there. Well, we'll see. I mean, there's certainly going to be some, some, I think, some battles coming up. I mean, Premier Smith, though, has been pretty clear that she she wants to, she, she, she's not going to put up with it, or at least she's, she's taken on the most uh, uh, defensive stance we've seen on this for, from a Premier in Alberta in quite some time. Do you think she'll follow through on that? Yeah, and uh, I, I, think, um, I, I think she absolutely means what she says. It's a strong team that's facing Ottawa. You know, um, Rebecca Schultz and uh, and Brian Jean and Danielle Smith, and they got the rest of the, the cabinet behind them on this. Um, if this is going to work for them, it's going to work like Ottawa says do this. They say we won't. Ottawa tries to sue, and they drag it out in court, hopefully past the next election date, and then with, a, with uh, what many expect will be a different government. There will be a different dynamic between the federal government and the uh, and the provinces only hope <laughs> just, um, yeah it's uh, it's never looked more likely well it segues into you know wondering about uh, the, the next government or what may be so we we, we just had uh, four by-elections that were just held the other day in uh, two liberal ridings and two uh, conservative ridings and Pretty much, it looks like the status quo won the day. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no significant movement compared to past uh, a polling, and, and, and uh, you know, well, you know, I, one of the one of the ones that is worth talking about is Portage Lisgar, where uh, Max Bernier, of course, had high hopes of claiming a seat in Parliament, uh, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't even come close. And I don't, I don't say this with any great sense of satisfaction, but the truth, the, the numbers are that the Conservative candidate got 20,000 votes and Bernier got 5,000. So what does that mean for the future of the uh, People's Party if they can't make significant headway in a, in a riding like that? I mean, the other place that they tried out was in um, 
was in Winnipeg South Center, and they got 300 votes. Uh, three, like one percent of the um, of, of the votes. So it looks to me as if the PPC idea has had its chance and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Now that actually could be a good thing for the Conservative Party of Canada because in the last election the people who go through the results and the spreadsheets reckon that the loss of votes from the Conservatives to the People's Party probably cost them about 15 seats. It's disputed, but there was certainly an outflow of the more conservatively-minded people um, uh, uh, who were, went to vote for, for the People's Party didn't vote for the Conservatives, split the vote, and a Liberal slipped slip by. So I think that's uh, what those uh, by-election results tell me, is that PPC is probably a spent force. I don't think it's going to disappear, but I don't think it's going to be a factor in the next general election. I could be completely wrong, but that's my quick take on the election results. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I can. I think it's a fair take. Uh, and it, the Conservatives are going to need that extra little bit, though, because they also aren't gaining ground right now. I mean, it just seems astounding with the, I mean, we understand a couple were safe liberal seats, so they weren't going to switch. We were hoping maybe to see some progress or some increases, and it's not looking like anything's moving. I mean, no matter how many scandals, no matter how many cover-ups, no matter how much ineptitude we're seeing from this federal government, uh, the partisan lines are drawn in the sand. I think and nobody seems to be ready to move. Well, to be fair, uh, these are low turnouts. Uh, and, and that's the it's, way... It's hard uh, to read too much into a by-election. Yeah, the by-elections are never, never, never big turnouts. But we've got 36%, 45%, 38%, you know. Uh, it's a strong sample if you were a polling company, but it's not really giving you the picture for, the, for a future battle, whether it's next year or the year after. And I think that that helped um, Premier Smith here with the election here in Alberta was that she had managed to consolidate that kind of um, far right vote and bring it back into the fold. And uh, I mean, when you think about it, uh, the margin between a majority and being turfed out of office was like, what, 2,600 votes across the province? Yes. So uh, I think I in think that actually 2,600 votes here in Calgary, really. Pretty much. Uh, pretty yeah. Much, uh, very, very, it's very tight, and and that's not an unusual thing to have elections turn on a relatively small number of seats where the voters are evenly divided. In the 2011, the famous 2011 election, which led to Harper's strong, stable national majority conservative government, I still say it after all these years. Uh, I mean, that, that all came down to about 5,000 votes coast to coast. We won one riding up by two votes uh, with those kinds of, uh, with, with that kind of division in certain areas. Um, it's critical that if you want a conservative government, you better vote for a conservative government, not make a protest vote to another party. And by the same token, if you want a liberal government, it's important you turn out. Well, that's the, the nature of our system as well. Is some stuff's almost beyond your own control, but it, it seems to be whether conservative or liberal, it depends on who the peripheral parties are splitting the vote at any given time. Like the, when it, the strong NDP, which we don't really have too much right now, but with a, a strong NDP biting into the liberal support, 
conservatives have a much better chance of moving ahead. But when the NDP is weak, the liberals can can pull it off. As I said in Alberta, of course, we saw the, the extreme example of it when the, the Wild Rose Party split with the conservatives. And had there been even a 10% bite out mm -hmm. of uh, out of the vote uh, last time around, we'd have another NDP government here. Yeah, they told me you were giving money to the NDP, Corey, just for that very reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't have enough money. <laughs> just rumors. <laughs> but it's a frustrating state. So, so but where does Bernier go from here? I mean, he's still has the support of a significant amount of people. I mean, enough to sustain a little party, though it doesn't really, they, they've got to find themselves and figure out what they want to do or where they're going. Then. Look, I, I, I actually have got a lot of time for the things that Mr. Bernier says. That's, he happens to, uh, he and I are in sync on a lot of things. However, I am prepared to vote for the person who can actually give me a fraction of that as long as I at least get that. Because another four years of a liberal government, I think, would see all of the things that we've just been talking about in terms of the destruction of the energy industry here in Alberta come about. I, I can think of a number of other things that wouldn't go very well, but just to stay on, on topic, Everything we talked about in the first 20 minutes of this show is on the line if the Liberals form another government in 2025 because that's their policy. So if you want to stop that, you've got to, you've got to vote for the person who's most likely to do that. In my judgment, that's, the, uh, that's going to be the uh, Conservative Party with Pierre Polymer. I, I mean, much as I like Mr. Bernier, let, look, I also like the people in the Christian Heritage Party, but there's no way that they're ever going to win a seat, never mind former government. So what's the point of putting your vote there? Go with somebody who can do something for you. So, and then likewise, so the other by-election was Oxford, and the Conservatives took that seat. Uh, but that was a, the winner came in with 43% of the vote when the last election in was 47. I said, you can't read too much into a by-election, but Still, I mean, they need to see some forward momentum. I mean, this can't be blamed on the PPC. This can't be, uh, you know, Mr. Polyev has to grasp the interest, I think, of Canadians somehow, and he's had a difficulty doing it, I think, so far, or at least non-conservative, you know, the swing voters out there that are there, they don't seem to be swinging to the Conservatives yet. They haven't heard enough. <laughs> There's always room to hurt more, isn't there? Isn't there? I think he's having a hard time capturing the imagination of people um he's a very good speaker when you see him in question period um you know he's sharp and he's quick on his feet but uh, i don't think he's managed to find um an issue or a platform that really uh, captures the imagination of not just people here out west in the prairies but uh, across the country you see you're making the assumption that people are judging candidates by their policies right I'm not sure that they do. Uh, certainly, uh, Polliver has been talking about things that people care about a lot, which is affording a house, buying a home. This is especially strong among young people fresh out of college, in their first, second jobs, and looking to build what their parents had. And so when he talks about gatekeepers and the things that make it difficult for younger people to get started on this very basic aspiration of owning the place that you live in. He is 
he is talking to an eager audience. So then, well, all right, well, what's not working then? And what I get back is that, well, women don't like him because he's too strong. He's too, he's too sharp. You know, that poor Mr. Trudeau gets, uh, gets savaged every day and it's not fair. And some of these kind of non-political considerations can really affect how people perceive uh, a politician. Take Stephen Harper. Easily, without question, the most competent and able prime minister that this country has had since the Second World War. If you're just going by pure efficiency in governing, that's all that Harper was interested in before he went in. Good governance. That's what he delivered. What did he? What was the knock on Harper? Oh, he's a cold fish. Look at those blue eyes. They just go right through you. Like, what's that got to do with anything? You know, it's like saying, well, I don't want that guy to be my surgeon. He, he seems like a miserable soul. When in actual fact, he's the most competent surgeon in the hospital. And the guy who has the wonderful bedside manner has been known to make mistakes. I'm going with the, I'm going with the surgeon who can fix my brain. And I'm going to go with the pilot in the airline who's going to put it down on the numbers. Not the fellow with the big mustache who talks a good game. So, you know, we judge politicians by the wrong standards. They really do. And that's what's working against. I remember when uh, Preston Manning got laser eye surgery. Yeah. You know, and, and started... Uh, he fixed his hair up a bit. Too, yeah, and started things. appealing to kind of to young people talking, you know, that, <laughs> that kind of language. And, uh, you know, it was a real shift for him because, you know, Preston was, you know, kind of like doctor well, nerd. To, I think it kind of helped, though, too. I mean, it, I think you did. said, you know, that presentation, I mean, uh, Mr. Manning's policies were solid for what they were with the reform. And that was, mm -hmm. like, he was always a policy-focused man. And, uh, but yeah, often the critique was, oh, that old fashioned hair and those glasses and that voice. And, uh, when he did start swinging that a little bit anyways, it, it, it did expand and it was just frustrating because it should be a matter of making a better sale of your policies rather than uh, having better hair. But it, it's a reality that has to be faced. Uh, you know, Corey, I, I didn't live in Alberta back in the 1950s and the 1960s, but people who did tell me this province was never governed better than it was the, in the hands of a bunch of old men in drip dry suits. You know, boring old guys, but he had ethics and they did the right thing and they did their best. Oh yeah, Wouldn't mind a bit of that. No, you think of the old ones, it's, it's uh, you know, even people liberal leaning ones like Grant McEwen and that, there was a different yeah. type of, of honor, I think is the main term I, I, yeah, you know, that I, you don't I, see. I think you're right. Who resigns on a point of principle these days or Designs after they've made a royal screw up, <laughs> and the screw ups are building up. Oh. Well, let's talk about our screwer upper in chief, Justin Trudeau, and the latest, which is kind of a bizarre story that broke this week or didn't break or happened or didn't happen. Uh, but word got out that the RCMP are investigating Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the SNC Lavalin. Uh, matter and and then they corrected no they they aren't like what the, what are going on well let me just be Dave Naylor for a moment because <laughs> normally speaking when we do this Derek's there and Naylor is there and Dave just sort of said well what is the actual news here yeah so this is this is our story reviewing the readout issued by the government of Alberta after. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the, the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, try good that story on. all the same. Yeah, it's great, great story. But, uh, I think you've got it on the bottom. Right? I think, ah, there it goes. The RCMP denied it was investigating SNC-Lavalin just hours after the publication 
of an access to information request where the police force said the exact opposite. The claim was made in a RCMP tweet, and they said, this just two days ago, in response to numerous media reports, the RCMP can confirm it is not investigating allegations of political interference in the trial of SNC-Lavalin. So look, that, that I guess is their position. That's the fact. They're not investigating. But why did we think they might be? Well, the tweet runs contrary to a May 25th letter, and that's not even a month ago, that the RCMP sent to um, Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch. And that was published in uh, conjunction with a media release on Monday morning. Uh, and the only thing we can say is that they were actually responding to an old inquiry 10 months ago. So perhaps there was a, 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 um, and Conacher is the person to, to, to speak on this, but he put in his originally, his original FOIP back in last July. And freedom, FOIP, freedom of information for people who are, don't, don't get into the journalistic jargon. And it's taken all this time to come back to him, which is pretty typical, unfortunately. And so in the meantime, evidently, the RCMP have changed their minds. So that's about that's what I make of it. Do you, do you see more? I, I don't see more, but it, it, it certainly stirred a lot of things up. There are some people who feel that, uh, you know, if indeed there was interference, that there should be charges. I've seen others turning it around, fair enough, that a similar parallel, not quite as I think is extreme, where they're saying, well, Daniel Smith, Premier Smith, was found... Uh, uh, by the ethics commissioner to have been inappropriately uh, lobbying on behalf of somebody in there and that the charges should follow there. Uh, I guess some of the questions people start asking, even if this has been resolved with the RCP, should we be pursuing politicians with criminal type charges in these situations or not? Uh, well, you know, if it's criminal, it's criminal. But uh, let's be honest about it. The, the nexus between government agencies and the government itself, whether we're talking about the, the energy regulator mm -hmm. or whether we're talking about the, uh, the, the regulators that look after the airline industry or, in this case, the RCMP, Statistics Canada, the list goes on and on. The people who are at the top of these agencies are not stupid. They know what the government wants and what it doesn't want. And they don't always need to be told what is a, what to do. Sometimes they just recognize that something is politically hot. Maybe it's not a good idea to go after it. Now, this sounds pretty like, uh, this sounds like uh, tin hat stuff, as if there's just one vast conspiracy, but, you know, uh, look, at, look at the courts. We have got a court system which is very responsive to what it believes is going on in government. And you think, well, how can you even begin to say that the law is the law? And the answer is that the law is not the law when a government, when a, when a court thinks otherwise. We have a thing called a living tree interpretation of the Canadian Constitution. In fact, it is explicit that the court system is supposed to be responsive to the public mood. And so if everybody thought this in the 1950s, well, fair enough. But the, these days we think this, therefore we interpret the law that way. So right there at the highest levels, we have a 
perfect illustration of the responsiveness of government agencies to public opinion and government sensitivities. I have no evidence that the RCMP were unduly influenced in this. This may well have come as a consequence of a thorough and exhaustive investigation, and they found no evidence worth pursuing. But it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, well, and I mean, some of it is when it comes to at least following through on a prosecution. They, you got to think of the whole picture. I mean, is it the pursuit of this worth or the, looking into the public interest, the disruption of, of actually criminally charging a sitting prime minister would be massive. And, and you, you know, even if unconsciously have to be thinking about the consequences of what will come about if you decide to try to do something like that. Well, and there's a certain amount of fatigue, I think, that's set in as well, um, given, you know, some of the past, um, I, I guess they aren't even allegations, they're actually findings of fact, that, uh, you know, conflicts of interest against Prime Minister and, and the things that he's done, and they range from potentially quite serious to, you know, banal, you know, the, the blackface and, and, you know, drinking too much beer at a music fest in Kelowna, and um, so... After a while, it seems to be you just don't really know what to believe anymore or how serious these things really are. And it's like you said, if uh, you know, I would hope that if the RCMP found something that was serious enough you know, to warrant following up with criminal charges, that they would actually do it. You know, I have a hard time believing that they wouldn't, but I don't know. Yeah, well, this is not just that. I mean, everything we've seen, there's no indication that there's been any political pressure or anything mm -hmm. in this particular case. No evidence at all. But the RCMP has come under question in the last few years over a number of things. So with Brenda Lucky, we never really did hear resolution on that so much with, uh, for example, with the uh, uh, Nova Scotia uh, massacre, the, the shooting that happened out there. And the Prime Minister's office had been pressuring the RCMP and the head of the Prime RCMP was pressuring investigating officers to release information prematurely on that. That's distressing stuff and, and then to have seen at least from what i can tell never really saw any resolution over what happened there um there's some mistrust in the in the, at least the leadership of the rcmp and that's that's not a good place to be yeah i think there's always been a certain amount of mistrust in the leadership of the rcmp it seems to me it goes way back into the trudeau days you know that there's always been and it's usually up at the top and it's in ottawa because uh where the politically based things are happening, I'd have a harder time seeing it happen out in any of the provinces where they would be investigating, you know, uh, the premier of Saskatchewan or something like that, except for maybe Colin Thatcher. Well, I guess we'll see who comes calling when the federal government tells the government of Alberta exactly what to do when they don't do it. When they break the criminal code yeah. for violating the environmental statutes, I don't, think that, I don't think that would be in the criminal code, would it? I don't know. Jabot seems to think it is. He threatened uh, Scott Moe <laughs> with the criminal get code. Me. Yeah, oh, get me. Me. Yeah. yeah, there's just some bizarre posturing between those two. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's our our main uh, law enforcement, and and, and uh, I think part of the RCMP they've always been a very tight organization with information like sometimes they don't do themselves any favors when you you do have to foip it i mean we understand ongoing investigations they can't just leave it to the public and everything but they they also aren't very you know communicative when when, when something happens or things like that and that fosters mistrust or at least animosity between the rcp and media quite often 
Yeah, I mean, that is so typical, though, of any government agency. We happen to be talking about the RCMP, and they certainly supply us with examples. But, you know, the, the, the agencies that try and get information out of Public Health Canada, you know, they will give it to you eventually when it's no longer relevant. Try and get a call back from Statistics Canada. You know, it's it, it, it's difficult. And I think the reason is that whenever it, whenever an agency has a reporter asking, they think, what are they going to do with this? Like, what's the story going to be? Is this going to be a PR problem for us? So there is a, an incentive to be minimal with information. What the public doesn't know, the public can't ask questions about. So when we get into the high level or, or sensitive areas of, of law enforcement or, or, or things, if there's misdeeds, who is the body though that has to take care of this or how can it? I'm thinking more with the, the allegations of Chinese Communist Party interference on a number of levels or even intimidation of members of parliament, uh, you know, inserting themselves into nominations by elections. Some of them may potentially have a criminal uh, element. I mean, if you're threatening or, or intimidating a member of parliament, that, that could have criminal sanction. But at what point does uh, a law enforcement agency get involved in that? Or, or you know, the, it seems CSIS is being sidelined. So uh, who does? Well, certainly not a retired governor general <laughs> yeah. with close ties to the... You know, it's a very good question that you ask. Such is the distrust for institutions in Canada at the moment that it is very hard to identify a person or an office, an institution. You say, well, look, put it in their hands and we know it will be done right. Um, you might say, well, why don't we take a retired Supreme Court judge? Again, you have to know what are their ties, what are their backgrounds. Uh, the, the short answer, Corey, is I really don't know where you would go to find a person who everybody would trust. Well, and trust is sort of essential if we're going to try and dig into something yeah. as, as you know, entrenched as, as possible, electoral interference or, or intimidation of our elected officials. Uh, but we're kind of hitting a, a, the end of the road with this one. I mean, where are we going anyways? You know, are we going to get another special rapporteur, whatever the heck that is anyways? Even if we do, would that person be able to do anything? Well, what a special rapporteur as conceived by the prime minister, no. What uh, what Johnson could not do and what Johnson needed to be able to do if he was ever going to succeed in that task was to subpoena witnesses and require testimony under oath. So I have to hope that in 40 million Canadians there is one person, maybe a few to choose from, who, if put in the position of saying, get to the bottom of this, you have the powers you need, go to it, that would actually get that done. I said just now, I don't know who, I don't know who that would be. I don't have a, a list in my pocket, but surely to goodness there must be maybe a former CSIS director now living in comfortable retirement like George Smiley, who can go and be grabbed and, and brought it brought to center stage again. Well, there should be a large amount of, you know, retired justices or people. I mean, it doesn't even have to be at a, at a top level individuals. So they've had some well-qualified history. And, and uh, I mean, it, it... somebody who's not 
too worried about their reputation. <laughs> Someone who could stand up there and take a beating and, and, and not really care. They'll take the, uh, the, the, the beating, I guess, a bit in the way in. But, I mean, it's still nothing compared to, say, if you want to sit for an American Supreme Court spot. Uh, why is his name eluding me? The man who they just uh, crucified uh, a couple of years ago. Bork. Robert Bork. Kavanaugh. 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 There's another one. Well, actually, yeah. there's a list, isn't there? And boy, I mean, who yeah. would want to apply for that job when you have to run that horrific gauntlet? Um, you know, somebody investigating this shouldn't, but now that the precedent's been set with the last one, it was just so compromised in appearance, mm. anyways. That, that well, that his he, problem was he was appointed by the prime minister. I mean, there would be some hope if you get parliament itself to report to uh, appoint the person and have that person reporting to parliament. Well, it's if you had an all-party committee. I mean, it's not the first. This all-party committees exist. They, they've been around. And if they do, you know, with a lot mm -hmm. of fighting and burning the midnight oil and putting names forward and back, forward and back, if they do settle on somebody, I mean, it reduces the chances that any of those parties are going to suddenly come against this person because they voted yay when the time came to bring them in. But, well, they get the opportunity to pick that, though. No indication at the moment. Yeah. And we still have uh, yeah, so. Mr. Johnston in that role for another uh, nine days, I think. Huh. Uh, though what he's doing, I don't know anymore at this point. But, uh, strange state of affairs we are in. So, uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's I guess it, to bring it back to, just the main question people ask, is Canada broken? You know, a big, wide-open question, but we've got some very, very serious things that keep happening, and we just can't seem to get resolution. We, we, we can't clear these up. We can't stop them. Is, is the system flawed inherently? You don't. I don't think the system is inherently flawed, but I do think that the system was designed when there were higher expectations, not merely of people in office, but of people generally. Uh, we referred earlier to how you never hear of anybody resigning on a point of principle anymore, mm -hmm. or when caught in some flagrant misdeed, saying, all right, well, that's, I, I can no longer continue in my office. And we criticize the politicians for that, but then look at the society in, from whom we are drawing, from, from which we are drawing our elected representatives. How ethical are Canadians generally? Do people cheat on their taxes? Do people lie on their resumes? Do people uh, Keep their word in simple transactions. Is a handshake deal still a deal in in Calgary in the oil patch? I'd like to think it is. I, I don't know, uh, but I think there's been a general decline in 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 the in the moral standards of what people think is the right thing to do. And so you are going to have politicians working the system uh, with those ideas in mind. And it's not always going to look good. 
That's even more depressing than thinking that the system is broken because the system can be fixed with uh, uh, legislative tinkering or even uh, rewriting. But if you've got a, a, an ingrained cynicism among the populace that ensures that you don't bring people with an honorable mindset into the profession of uh, politics or senior bureaucratic roles, uh, that's a lot harder to fix than... than uh, well, it is. Um, but it doesn't mean that it can't be fixed. No, you can't give up. We could go back into the schools and start teaching young people a sense of honor rather than a sense of entitlement. We could talk about success instead of victimization. We could get rid of the participation trophy and reward merit. We could build a culture based on a different set of values. The place to start is in the schools. Yeah, and boy, that's a topic for an entirely different show and a huge one. But that's absolutely right. Like I said, and I want to end on a note anyways of hopelessness because that's how I kind of felt at the end there. But <laughs> no, no, actually, just, it could be done, it, but it, you would have to want to do it. Yes. And political forces don't always want those things to happen. Well, if we work hard enough, we can make them do things they don't want to do, whether they like it or not. Sometimes. Yes. All right, we'll stay on their case. We uh, That's our job. And try to keep them as honest as we can, I guess. So. Well, that's about as much as we can do in, in this role. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today, guys. So thank you very much for joining today, Sean. And uh, as always, Nigel. And to all the rest of you out there, I appreciate the viewership. We've uh, almost solved a couple of the world's problems today. And we'll be back again next week to uh, solve the rest of them. <laughs> Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is up $3 at $4.23. Feed wheat increased $2 at $4.21. And corn moved higher $5 at $4.24 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures jumped 19 and 3 quarter cents to 8.68 and 3 quarters, with local harder at spring bid for July movement at 10.75 per bushel. Looking at canola, nearby futures are lower a dollar at 7.44.50 per ton with delivered values for June movement at 17.10 per bushel. And in the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are holding at 33.5 cents per pound and yellow peas are trading at 11.25 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle slipped 12.5 cents to 177 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.